Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and another week brings another apocalypse. These aren't your typical end times, though. Our guest this week is Mike McGuinness, dabbler in the literary strange, and his new novel, Drowning Practice, is borderline bizarre and frightening in a very particular way. It's about an apocalypse that everyone knows is coming, though no one knows what the conclusion will be. Rather than hordes of looters, murderers and cannibals, we've got everyday people clinging to their everyday lives in the looming shadow of the end of all things. Now we've talked about nightmarish scenarios on this show often, many of them informed by the pandemic, but drowning practice is perhaps the most committed meditation on these last mad two years that we've all shared. If that all sounds profound but a bit downbeat. Don't worry, it is the former, but not the latter. Mike and I discuss all sorts, the value of art in an apocalypse, NFT monkeys and the stupid side of capitalism, the link between depression and creativity, and the problem with losing your virginity at the end of the world. It's a lot to chew on. So, off we go, to an America waiting for the curtain to come down once and for all. Let's talk scared. Well, good evening, Mike. Welcome to Talking Scared. How are things where you are? Things where I am at the moment are good. I was telling you before we we started recording here, I just got back from Florida. Usually I live in in Iowa. Uh, I, I still live there now. To be clear, um, but I, I spent a few days in Florida for a uh, conference for my day job, and while I was there, I think I picked up uh, the Florida man of flu bugs. Uh, so it's been it's been wreaking havoc on me, and I've been uh, kind of hiding away in my basement for the past few days. That's where I'm hiding now. Uh, but currently, I, I seem to be doing okay. I'm I'm full of pizza power. <laughs> well, also, how nice and novel to have a a non COVID illness <laughs> you know i the big question for me every time um is have i finally got it right like i did the rapid at home test and that came up negative but those are pretty unreliable and then i took the additional special one that uh the post office gave us uh here in the u.s and um i have that it's being shipped out so we'll see but i assume i i don't have it and my good luck continue will continue and i'll never have it just like uh everyone else well let's hope so yeah i i've somehow kind of skated that curve myself i don't know how i've done it but i have done it and touch wood etc things should be okay that's we, we said on the brink of world war three so as, as as okay as things can be in the imminent future yeah Let's let's have a more, more positive end of world scenarios. Your novel, your new novel, Drowning Practice. What a trip! I I finished it today, and I have all the feelings. For context, let me explain to my listeners. When your publisher Echo reached out to me at the end of last year, I was so intrigued by the basic premise of your book, Drowning Practice, and more on that premise in a moment. That consequently. I've dragged you onto a kind of horror-inflected podcast to talk about a book that isn't easily categorised as horror. In fact, it's not easily categorised at all. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, you know, it's funny. This is kind of the first opportunity I've had to talk about a, a weird little thing uh, in my career, um, which is that uh, when people ask me what genre I write, because it has been such a struggle for me to categorize myself, and it's a little bit of a struggle for for publishers to know exactly how to sell me. I've always said that actually I think of myself as a horror writer, um, not because I really intentionally pursue that genre any more than I do any other, but because I've always written from a place of, or I've gotten my most productive writing from a place of writing about what scares me and what keeps me up at night and the things that I struggle with. And, you know, I have, for me, the greatest admiration I have for, for writers who really terrify me, but often they're also people who you wouldn't really think of as, as horror writers. So for example, um, Ishiguro is somebody that I think of as one of the scariest writers out there. I never hear him talked about as a horror writer, but like When We Were Orphans is one of the most upsetting, disquieting, frightening books I've ever read. I find it intriguing that you've said that because, and this is genuine, when I closed Drowning Practice, the feeling I had was very, very similar to how I felt when I finished Never Let Me Go. Well, it's a huge uh, compliment. <laughs> well, a similar kind of inchoate sorrow, I suppose. Um, sorrow being the word, not sadness, sorrow. Um, and that's not necessarily to say that the end of the book is even downbeat in, in many ways. And we won't really give too much away. But yeah, I felt that I felt bereft in that same way. So yeah, it is interesting that, that you mentioned Ishiguro. Uh, and also quite quite promising that you you feel you are a, a horror writer in, in some way. Um, I'll admit, for a fair number of pages, I was worried that I'd kind of let my listeners down and, and put you in an awkward position. But then the more I read Drowning Practice, the more readily the, the real horror of its various situations kind of came to the fore for me. And I think it's a piece of fiction that is quite particularly disturbing in light of the reality we're all living with. So that's my vague guarded intro. Over to you now, Mike. Can you tell us what we need to know about Drowning Practice? Yeah, so at the beginning of Drowning Practice, uh, everyone in the world has a dream where a loved one tells them that the world is going to end. And they don't give a, they don't give a lot of information about why or how or anything like that. They just say it's going to happen in November. And when everyone wakes up and discovers that they've had the same dream uh, on the same night, roughly, uh, they conclude well, this is probably going to happen. Um, some people believe it instinctively. Other people fight it instinctively. But if, if nothing else, there's sort of a sense that this is the thing that we're going to be worrying and thinking about for the next year. Um, so then the protagonists are Lyd, who is a uh, once successful novelist, now sort of a, a dry drunk agoraphobe um, who, who has been, she hasn't left her apartment for the past three years and her daughter, Mott, who is 13, and uh, wants to write a novel before the world ends. And they, they are called home by, their, uh, the, by Lid's ex-husband and Mott's father, who uh, he's a spy for an unspecified agency in the United States. And he is saying, you got to come live with me 
Uh, Lid does not want to do that. She's terrified of living with him. And so they flee uh, David, the the ex-husband, across the country. He's chasing them. And meanwhile, Mott is trying to write her novel like her mother, whom she admires so much, uh, before the world ends or they are caught by David. Yeah, so it, it is kind of a book of two halves in some ways. There's the macro and the micro. And, well, well, let, let's deal with the macro first, this whole global end-of-world phenomenon. You, you can imagine this show being what it is, that I've, I've talked about a lot of end-of-the-world scenarios. I've had, I've had all sorts on this show in the last two years, like plagues, zombies, play, a, lot, a lot of plagues. <laughs> um, <laughs> but drowning practice is very different. And let's start off. What prompted you to take this really offbeat approach to doomsday? Why make it about foreknowledge rather than shock? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few reasons. Um, one thing that is happening here is that I, I wrote this book, I finished the first draft back in, it would have been like early 2015, um, did most of the writing in, in 2014, I think. And ever since that, I've experienced this weird seesaw of, you know, the world has looked like it was ending in various ways. And sometimes it seemed more like the end of the world that I describe in the book. And sometimes it seems less like it. And so I have this weird ghoulish part of me that is thinking, okay, well, like commercially, how is it for me right now? What are are my chances um, based on the current style of apocalypse we're experiencing? Um, which, you know, doesn't, I don't feel proud of that, but it is, it is the, the ghoulish business we're in, right? Um, and, and we actually sold the book um, right after the pandemic started. Um, I just sent it out. Um, this would have been like April, maybe early May. And it was, it was bought in June when um, we were still really getting used to things and everybody was, was constantly under the pressure that, well, maybe in a, in a couple more weeks, we'll get to go back to normal, right? So in a way, it predates all of this, but the, we're currently in a phase of it feeling a lot like the, the kind of apocalypse I'm describing here because of that sense of foreknowledge, right? The sense that there's nothing happening right now that is necessarily going to kill us all, but we can very clearly see the outlines of things coming that might do that. Um, And I think that the original impetus behind writing it that way was partly that I was experiencing um, in the time when I wrote this really intense, really, really challenging depression. Um, Things have gotten a bit better since but I was walking around with this constant feeling of doom and I was like struggling to sleep because I was thinking constantly about how I was going to die soon. I was going to die. Right. Um, And so I wanted to write about the experience of being a a person who knows that they're going to die, which of course we all do. um, But we, we have ways of not thinking about that Um, and, and trying to, to produce something that makes it feel as if it's all been worth it. Um, trying to trying to leave behind some kind of of creation that that kind of validates your existence and whether that's possible and whether it's even a thing worth doing, right? So that's why it's about the the future knowledge. Is that I mean, and obviously there's analogies to climate change and 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 other things like that, right? Like all these problems that we see coming. Um, but that that's sort of the emotional space that I was writing from and trying to capture. That that thing that you described, that 
presentiment of doom. I'm feeling that massively at the moment. And, and, and this podcast has become a bit of an open wound for me in recent weeks. I've, I've kind of been going, here's my mental state. Help. <laughs> um, but it, it does feel like the awareness of just the shit coming down the track towards us is becoming untenable. It's becoming a weight that's almost too, mu- too much to be borne. You know, we, as a society, we just can't keep taking it. This book really nails that because I've grown quite tired of teasing out the links between fiction and our own fractured reality in in recent months because there's a lot of books that either are intentionally or accidentally reflecting what we're all going through. Um, Drowning Practice though makes that question really really relevant again because despite the high strangeness I would say your book comes closest of all the apocalyptic fiction I've read to get into the very heart of this experience we've all shared. Now, I was going to ask you, how was your vision of, of pre-apocalypse shaped by what you've seen in the last two years? But obviously, the, the publication schedule kind of prohibits that question. What I'll ask instead is, do you do you see a reflection of your fiction in how we have responded to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the I, I've always had... We, we kind of started talking about some of the challenges that I've had in terms of classifying my fiction. And it was an issue when I was in, um, when I was getting my, my graduate degree, when I was in, you know, workshops from my MFA, it, it's an issue as I try to publish and, and market these things. But the, the explanation I've always given to justify my continued use of kind of slanted genre uh, tropes and, and strategies is that I feel like it is impossible to capture my real experience of the world using strictly realist devices and and terms, right? That like, I can't, I can't talk about what it feels like to be the person that I am without resorting to things that are impossible, things that are, are slippery and, and make, like invite the reader to negotiate a little bit about what their sense of, of what is real. And, uh, you know, I really felt that um, as a young person trying to write about the experience of, of poverty. Um, and it's something that I feel now trying to write about the experience of, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of, in, in some ways, this is a very, I think, um, privileged person's idea of the apocalypse because it's not, um, an imminent danger. It's not something that's that's coming to get me actively. It's more just something that I that I feel looming. And so for me, the pandemic has mainly highlighted and heightened the senses of of doom and of um, social dissolution that I was already experiencing. You know, um, most of the people in the book, uh, even though the world is ending. Um, they can't really think of anything great to do with their time. So they just, they just keep doing their jobs. Um, not always well, not always enthusiastically, but they, they show up for the eight to five and they just kind of let that eat their time for them. And that's very much how I felt before the pandemic. And it's even more how I feel now where it's all, it's understood that everybody is working these, these eight to five jobs that, that we have, uh, if we're so fortunate, um, we're, we're doing it with a half empty tank and we're often going to be doing a bad job. But the important thing is that we continue showing up 
and and simulating the work, right? Um, and so to me, that's the that's the biggest um, point of connection. There's that, and then there's there's a sort of a subplot in the book about a general um, disinvestment in you know public infrastructure, in shared community resources, and things like that. And I think that you know that that has really been sort of the the dominant fact about a lot of the. Uh, less the federal response in the United States, but certainly the state level response um, to the pandemic. And I, I'm sure that we're seeing that elsewhere too. I'm, I'm not super familiar with the, with your situation, but I, I get the sense that the broad strokes are not uh, super great. No, no, we, we're led by idiots. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned the work thing because reading this book, I was continually put in mind with, of this meme I saw early in the pandemic and it, it was a Venn diagram that one side said apocalypse and the other said having to go to work. And in the little overlap bit, it said, how did we end up here? Yes. <laughs> and it, it feels like that your book, this is what gets me about how you wrote this before the pandemic, because you you nail kind of the, the humour and the genuine sadness of the idea that people have such little meaning in their lives or such little self-determination that they just go back to these everyday tasks that have become more redundant than ever in light of what's happening, like selling cars, making Cheerios. Why, why do you think people would or do still do this? So that's like one of the big questions in the, in the book, but like there's, I sort of make a point, of my own inability to, to answer it to an extent, right? Um, you know, the, the main characters of the book are um, a young girl who she, the first decision she makes um, in the beginning of the book is she's not going to go to public school anymore. She doesn't want to be there for her educators sort of going through the motions. She's going to stay home and, um, and hopefully work on this novel. And the first real decision that the the mother character makes is to cooperate with that and to opt out on her own job and flee across the country and and just spend her time supporting the the making of art by her daughter so i think that there's a there's a pretty obvious read here that one can make that i'm arguing that what you should do is quit your job make the art that makes you happy and um that's the meaning of life but uh I, you know, the characters aren't satisfied by that decision in and of itself. I'm not satisfied by that decision to the extent that I am making it, which, you know, I, I do have my day job. And, and it is not my experience that making art uh, makes you happy or stops you from feeling that sort of existential dread, that feeling of I'm wasting my life. Instead, you feel like you're wasting your life writing something that nobody's ever going to read, which is, is the literal situation in the book, right? The character uh, knows that the world is going to end before she has time to go through, you know, the, the publication process, uh, even if somebody was going to read a novel by a 13 year old. But um, I mean, I see it as a real blind spot of the characters and, and this is something that they talk about, but they don't really know what to do with the fact that clearly most people aren't writing novels and, and there are probably good reasons for that. And I can't totally imagine what they are. And that's like, that's the thing that's fucked up about me. So like, on the one hand, I kind of want to ask the reader, like, are you doing the thing 
that you feel you should be before you die, because that is going to happen. But on the other hand, um, I want to be very honest with the reader that I am doing the thing that I feel I should do before I die. And as I said at the top of this recording, I am a person who has dealt with terrible depression. So it's not like it solved anything for me. Yeah. You know, Mott is this, you know, she's the precocious kid who just wants to write a novel before the world ends. And yeah. And as you say, you know, there's some debate over whether that is the right thing for her to do. Um, It goes beyond that, though, because she's so focused on writing her book that it quite literally results in her being locked away in a room for almost the entirety of what may be her last few weeks on Earth. So I wondered, as alongside this, you know, the debate that you said about purpose and things like that, is there also a kind of a debate about the, 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 the relative importance of art? You know, that sometimes experience, genuine experience, is more important than, than art. And we all like to consider art this rarefied thing because it's a book podcast. But I, I did feel reading this, I want to say like, Mott, go and look at the sunset, go, go make a friend, go and, you know, stop writing the book. And that's a weird thing to confront as a reader and someone who loves books. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, it's it's both, like, my genuine answer to what I would do if the world were ending. I think I would try to write the most amazing, beautiful book that I could, and I would try to share it with whoever I was able to share it with. And I, and I know that that's my answer to some extent because that's what I'm doing, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, like I said, I don't... I don't think that that's fixed my problems. And so I'm very skeptical of it as a real solution. And I, and I do think that there's a very good argument to be made that, that the characters are making terrible decisions as far as how they use their time in the end. I mean, I'm also, I, I'm a real believer in hedonism. I think it's important to just like, you know, eat good food and, and get drunk sometimes and, and just, you know, have have totally meaningless laughs with friends and encounters with nature and all that stuff. But at the same time, you know, you see that presented, I think, in fiction about the apocalypse as one potential solution. And there's like one thing that many of these stories agree on, which is, well, at least the young people should get laid, right? <laughs> like if nothing else before you die, you gotta lose your virginity. And I and I really wanted to react against that in this book because there's um there's a really creepy thing that happens in that line of thought where it's like, well, in order to really have lived your life, you're going to have to become sexually available to the, to the people, uh, particularly the men in your life. And if you don't do that, you haven't really lived. And so those thoughts are not of a piece um, necessarily, right? Like I do think you should go out and and see the sunset uh, before you die. And I think that that doesn't have a lot of connection to whether you should try and, and, uh, you know, hook up with somebody on the night before the world ends or whatever. But they, they do get bundled in our culture and in our stories about about death and about the apocalypse. And I, I really wanted to look at look at why and the just think a little bit about why that grosses me out and the extent to which I end up feeling it anyway. Yeah, because the people who do do that are the closest thing to a apocalyptic danger there's a i won't go into it too much but there um there is a kind of loose collection of people who end up wearing masks and and acting this in this fairly barbaric way um and at first like when you read the book they feel like the enemy 
But then the more I think about it, the more like that actually seems like the most appropriate reaction to what is happening. Way more appropriate than the deciding to write a novel. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. And, you know, and like I felt some guilt in writing those characters because um, the the other characters who are sort of the point of view folks, they are really unsettled and and afraid of those characters and they're they're not wrong but at the same time there's a part of me that wants to like you're saying take the side of the folks that decide to to go out hedonistically and say like you know what maybe maybe that is closer to what we ought to be doing and maybe that's a little more honest the other thing is going back to the the biggest scale of this capitalism endures doesn't it like there's loads of cool details like the police for example become repo agents that prioritize objects and ownership over everything else i mean you could say they already are that you know but it becomes quite overt and then even at the end of the book with only days left there are these signs everywhere that are still trying to eke some financial windfall out of the crisis it's it's kind of like the definition of disaster capitalism not so much, I suppose, late stage capitalism as kind of end stage capitalism. And and that reads like satire in a lot of ways. But I also wonder, is it comfort? Is that what we become at the end? What what we still cling to as the defining structure of our lives? I mean, yeah, I you know, the 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 recent emergence of the the NFT thing has been such a weird heightened example of this that it kind of makes satire feel impossible because this is a thing where people are creating value out of nothing um, just because uh, the way that capitalism works now is so based on uh, speculation and the the development and rapid inflation of these like totally meaningless assets Um but at the same time, there is, I think that for a lot of people, like you see, you see the, the grabbing onto NFTs by the most sort of debauched corners of the internet, right? Like your, your Reddit uh, threads and, and shit. And they, to me, I think that it's exactly what you're saying, which I, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but there's a lot of comfort in that sort of commercialism and in being able to to turn this experience of our environmental systemic collapse into an act of conspicuous consumption. Right. I, mm-hmm. I do think that there's, there's a lot of people find that to be really, really helpful in a weird way. They find it to be really comforting to, to be able to reduce this situation to those really crass and, and very easily, uh, terms that are really easily turned into routine that that feel normal to us but yeah i mean the F- nft thing like you say it, it's a frightening level of abstraction to finance isn't it and and it, it it does feel a little end times that kind of thing that it's been so divorced from anything that is useful you know it only exists in this kind of late as i say end stage capitalism where it's it's beyond anything because it goes back to hedonism it's beyond anything that is other than pure pleasure for that that brief moment of owning something for the pleasure of owning it and and that tends to be where apocalyptic capitalism goes in fiction you know you get the guy who's gone out and bought every car because he can have it or is it they'll have houses full of paintings and and that happens in in this book someone actually buys a painting and then quite 
quite crucially, it's under a cloth. They don't even look at it. And it just felt you had a lot to say about this kind of perverted, for want of a better word, capitalism in the end times. Well, and part of what what is so sad about the NFT thing is that, in my opinion, it's really incompetent debauchery, right? Like the the pleasures that are available to a person through the act of crypto mining and and purchasing virtual apes they're nothing by comparison to most of the other pleasures available right mm, like yeah. uh, a good example of of consumerism and and debauchery is you go buy yourself a really good sandwich um that's the sort of thing that i would suggest to people um so like it's the pursuit of pleasure but they're such hollow worthless pleasures that this is to the extent that I, I do think that writing a book at the end of the world or reading one at the end of the world is the right decision. This is, this is why it's because I think that the, the pleasure is a lot more lasting. It's a lot more substantial and it's, it's more, um, it's, it's just better. It's, it's just straight up better. I think. I guarantee every listener to this show agrees that books <laughs> are better than NFT monkeys. I can, I can guarantee that. <laughs> But all, all of this exhaustion, trying to marshal my thoughts. Right, to frame this question, let me quote a passage, if you don't mind. Because very early in the book, following this dream that warms the world will end, you write, quote, Most people immediately accepted that this was the truth, not only because they saw compelling evidence everywhere, everywhere around them, and not only because this was the first recorded occasion of a globally unanimous dream, but just because they were so tired. Now, a few years ago, I wrote this thing for a magazine about what I termed apocalyptic glee. And it was about the way that science fiction and, and traditional genre stories tend to use the end of the world as a way to kind of wipe the slate clean to make this blank canvas for a new beginning that's free from all the rigid interconnected architecture of our so-called civilization and that's in fiction it seems these days maybe that preemptive glee could have passed from fiction into reality that people are so tired of the world as it is that they just want a fresh start however cataclysmic that rebirth has to be do you see how that is reflected in your story yeah i'm uh i'm nodding vigorously over here because these are these are exactly the sorts of things that i was thinking about in writing it um it's so to to talk about like my own like mental situation again a little bit um one of the things that i've had to teach myself is not to project the future because when I project the future, when I try to imagine what's coming for me or on a global scale or whatever, I always imagine the worst possible thing. This, despite the fact that I have been personally extremely fortunate, I'm in essentially every measurable regard so much better off than I was uh, starting out as a kid. Um, but I, I just always expect things to get worse. And I think that there is a real desire in that. I think that I expect it partly because I, I want it to happen. And I think that it is very much out of that sort of anxiety that you're talking about that like, however bad it gets um, for me personally, the world, it feels like the world can't go on like this. It feels like it shouldn't. It feels like 
Um, other people shouldn't have to live in the ways that they do. And I shouldn't have to live in the way that I sometimes do with this, this fear of, of my own government, of the, the fascists that, you know, live next door to me and would like to, to really overthrow the country and do God knows what. Um, it feels completely unsustainable. And so there is tremendous catharsis on offer um, in the idea of, a, of an apocalypse, of an end of the world. And there is in fiction, I think that's why we've become so fascinated with it is we have stopped being able to imagine solutions that feel plausible to us. Yes, even, exactly even utopias usually begin with, with dystopias here, right? Where like first everything ends and then 2000 years from now, we have a functioning society again mm. in our stories. Um, but I don't think that that's what's going to happen, right? Like I think, like I said, I try not to project the future, but I think that if we do have the sort of cataclysm that we kind of want, we're going to end up like many of us will die, but some of us will live and society won't be reformed in a good way. It will just be people scraping by and surviving under new, perhaps more challenging circumstances. I don't think the catharsis is coming. And that's why I'll, I'll go ahead and like spoil a tiny thing about my book. Um, the ending, the ending is about an end of the world, but it, does not posit a solution in that ending. There isn't that catharsis. No, and I still can't quite work out whether I think the ending is hopeful or not. Because um, it's hard to balance the personal against the global in that way. Yeah. There's a lot of tension and ambiguity between the two. Um between the ending that certain characters get and the ending that the world gets. They're very different things, aren't they? Yeah. So, well, that's actually a good place to jump into character because whilst this is a grand story about the possible end of the world, it's also a smaller story about a broken family. And Would you agree or disagree if I was to say that a fundamental theme of the novel is control? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. It wasn't intentional, but I think that that is, that is what I found and that is what happened. Because David, so to, re, to reiterate in case, it's been a while since we mentioned their name. So you've got um, yeah. Mott is this 13-year-old girl. Uh, her mother is Lyd and um, their estranged husband and father is, is David. And the family is built on these various hierarchies of control. Um David controls Lid, but also Lid exerts her own power over over Mott. But let's start with David. He's such a disturbing character. He, he's made me quite physically uncomfortable to read his POV chapters because he's this tangle of contradictions and lies, often lies to himself as much as other people. Can you talk to me a little bit just about his creation? Yeah, so he's partly another reaction against um, sort of a set of characters that show up a lot in apocalyptic fiction. And then he's also just kind of me exploring the things that I find most upsetting about my own beliefs and ideas and, and, and tendencies. Um, so to cover that first part, 
he is a reaction against this this thing that happens in uh, fiction about the apocalypse where the protagonist in, and this is more movies and popular culture, this is more like TV shows and comics than it is books, which tend to have a little more variety. But in most of the like really mainstream depictions, your Walking Dead's, uh, The Last of Us. I was going to say, uh, we're talking Negan here, right? This is definitely yeah. what the comparison is, yeah. Exactly. Well, there's, so like, in, in most of those stories, there is the protagonist who is a, a strong, protective father who sorts of sort of creates a sense of order and safety for the other characters. And then there is another father, a worse father, who is too masculine, who is too domineering, who exerts too much control. And he's the really bad guy. And and I just wanted to get away from that question of like really like a really simple question of masculinity, how much is too much, right? Um, so it's partly about writing a character, a, a villain in this in this world who was a, a father, but it wasn't strictly about, was he too manly of a man? Um, but rather like what were, what, what were the specifics of, of living with this person as experienced by these specific characters? And, and how did he express his, his needs and how did he how did he hurt the people around him in ways that weren't strictly speaking just about being too much or not a, enough of a man um but i think also so i talked about how you know when i when i'm writing a character that i think of as more of a villain what i'll usually do and i, I think this is common is i will you know, write about the the worst plausible version of myself or things that I things that I think or believe. And so like he's a bit of a of a free love hippie in a way. And that's you know, I, I believe a lot of the things that he says he believes. Um, but I'm aware that some of the things that I I believe have potentially really troubling consequences, right? Like I'm not a huge fan of the idea of private property. But, um, you know, attempting to share and share alike has a has a really iffy history <laughs> uh, because people will tend to create uh, hierarchies and and to to exert control over each other, like you said, um, whether they're supposed to be sharing or not. Um, and so a lot of the really icky stuff with him is me sort of thinking through the worst possible version of ideas that I am fundamentally at least a little bit sympathetic to or, or interested in. Oh, that's, that's cool. Um, it's quite a brave thing to do to plumb yourself in that way. You, you mentioned that he's a bit of a hippie and I just found it both amusing and disturbing that he himself is this odd mix of hippie mindset and authoritarian job and attitude because he, as much as he be believes that, you know, that there is, he's one of those guys who would use the word energy in a very vague way, which is always a red flag. For <laughs> me. Um, and then, but then he also works for the, you know, the CIA and he's watching people and he's in, got this really malign control over people's lives. And that to me seems just a really strange juxtaposition between what, what would to me be too antith antithetical positions on a spectrum yeah well that's like that's one of the things that i'm trying to to explore that i i think is true but is is kind of hard to to think about which is like 
I think that we naturally tend to, or I naturally tend to anyway, you know, as a result of my politics or whatever, I tend to think of the surveillance state and I think of, um, you know, the, the ways that, um, you know, fathers uh, control their, their nuclear families or whatever as, as really right-wing phenomena, right? I think of them as, as sort of naturally connected to a certain kind of, of, you know, uh, conservative or, or crypto fascist or just outright fascist impulse. And I don't think that that, I don't think that that association that I have really survives first contact with my actual experience of people, which is like a lot of the, you know, politically liberal left ish, uh, men that I've known have still, while espousing, you know, egalitarian values and, and, you know, interest in, in the humans around them, they've done the same corrosive shit. Um, they, they felt that same privilege and that same, uh, desire and, and ability to, to control the people around them. Um, so I just feel like that's part of what like the apocalyptic genre is often implying is like, well, really the problem is right wing fatherhood. And I, I just don't think that's the case. I think that it's more pervasive than that. And that there are like exploitation and control really underwrite most of our familial interactions in, in significant ways that we have to like actively fight against in order to like treat each other as people. This episode is supported by Novelic, the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list with real recommendations from fellow minded readers broken down into genre, including, yeah, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelic for free on iOS or Android devices and start browsing right away or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared book club is up and running for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. You've led perfectly into my next question. Now, we've agreed so far on most things. Got a feeling we, we may not agree on this, but let's see. So, uh-huh. as I already said, David controls Liz, uh, Lid and Lid controls Mott. And to be honest... Up until quite late in the book, I wasn't convinced that that Lyd wasn't as sinister in her own way as David. I, she made me uncomfortable. Can, can you see where I'm coming from there? Or am, am I way off the mark in how you envisage these characters? No, I mean, I so I don't. I don't have that same experience, I don't think, but I know that um, readers have, and it's not surprising to me to hear about it. Would you like to like tease out a little bit more about like why you had that experience of her, like what what felt off to you? Well, it's like you're reading my script here. <laughs> um, so first of all, her behavior, she's very, not cold towards her daughter, but very um, rigid in her behavior. So, so, Mott isn't allowed to tell her that she loves her, um, despite the fact that, as she says repeatedly, you don't want me to tell you I love you. You just want me to love you more than anyone else. And it's like Lyd obviously needs Mott as a kind of emotional crutch, but he's never willing to reciprocate that relationship in the normal way. Um 
to the to the point where the, the book that Mott writes is actually a story a story of a, of a mother and a daughter who swap lives and and responsibilities for care and that kind of reflects her own relationship with her mother all of that kind of stuff left me feeling quite cold towards Lid for, for quite a while before she redeems herself yeah um so so I think part of this is just that I I may genuinely disagree with a lot of people about what is important in in familial relationships and in in relationships generally but I think that there is um Lid is not supposed to be a character who is doing everything right. You know, the the reason that she would give you for not wanting Mott to say, I love you, is that she feels that it's a coercive relationship. She feels that being a parent to a child, the child is forced to say, I love you. Uh, the child does not really get to the opportunity to come to any kind of independent judgment or think about other kinds of parents that they could have in a, in a very clear way. And so uh, the, the kid is being forced to, to give this love. At the same time, Lid desperately needs that love from her child, right? And we all need that love from our family members. And this is, for me, one of the like fundamental contradictions of family and of community and of being with other people, which is that on the one hand, I feel, as I've, I've kind of alluded to, I feel this really intense disgust at the way that people who are, who are related to each other or people who aren't feel comfortable demanding things from each other, feel comfortable demanding, um, you know, support, uh, love, um, sex, uh, money, you know, like all these things that we we have these relationships that are structured in a way where where we sort of understand what we're supposed to be um, extracting from each other and how. Um, but at the same time, like you can't live without those things, right? Like I, at the same time that I really sympathize with Lid's desire not to extract love from Mott, I also sympathize with her when she says like, Listen, I I need your love or I'm going to die. It's the it's the only thing that makes life worth living for me. So for me, like she's not the the way that she behaves toward toward Mott and the other people around her is not always heroic, but it does capture a real tension that I feel in my life as I try to give the people around me. Um, the things that they need and I try to allow them to have their own autonomy and I try to maintain mine. And at the same time, sometimes I need to go to my partner and just say like, guess what? Your night is about being nice to me because <laughs> I'm in a terrible mood. And like tomorrow my night will be about being nice to you. Right. Um, so like uh, readers have really, have really had, had trouble with that with lid. Um, and and I I love Lid very much. Mott loves Lid very much. I love Mott very much. Um, and I I hope that readers get to that point um, with them as well. But yeah, I mean that 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 is one of the fundamental tensions and challenges of the book. I think. Yeah, and I I did get to that point, and I want to talk about that. But part of that is a journey with the language. Um, because my, my feelings towards these characters and the book itself changed profoundly as it went along. So and a lot of that, I think, is to do with, with the language, both my understanding of character and of the book, the kind of book you were trying to write. So 
it starts off in quite the, the word postmodern is overused, but it's let's say it's very heightened. Um, Lid's conversation is very staccato. It's very very cold, and and I hope this isn't an insulting thing to say to an author. No, no. But but Lid for me didn't seem real for much of the first half of the book. Not in a sense I didn't believe in her as a, as a well-written character, but more that she wasn't making herself available for, for me to interpret. And you so you adopt this heightened, very arch style at the beginning, and, and then that seems to fed into a more naturalistic, heartfelt tone as the story continues. I think that's accurate. I think that's a fair description. Um... I think that for me, part of this, part of this is um, just about how I experience life in the world. And I, I feel closer to the um, sort of formal coldness that you'll find in some of the sentences and you'll find in some of the dialogue than I do to a lot of what is presented in, you know, conventional literary fiction as, um, the the language of the soul or whatever right like to me the the slightly more distant um approach is is closer to how how i tend to experience things and so there's a i think that i think that that can be a challenge right i think that there is um there's a negotiation um in any reading experience and i may be asking um the reader to come a little bit more over to to my side partly because i think like a lot of my favorite books have been books that sort of presented me with a, with a challenge in terms of tone and style and, and characterization and asked me to do some of that work of figuring out like, what was the gulf between me and that, that book and what did I need to do in order to, to close it? Um, so for me, it's partly just that that's kind of, uh, the sort of uh, hot and cold readerly, you know, seduction negotiation that I enjoy. But I think too that, um, you know, Lid spends the, uh, her arc in the book in a lot of ways is finding ways of talking honestly about the things that she needs and the, the things that she's struggling with. So, you know, initially she is uh, refusing to leave her apartment. She's She's been stuck there for something like three years. And she's doing this partly to protect herself from alcohol, right? Because she knows that once she gets out in the world, she will start just drinking everything in sight. Um, and then and then you go through the period where she's left the, the apartment. And that is indeed what happens. She drinks everything in sight. She has a, a rough time. Um, but like, I, I hope that the reader knows that that she does feel that love for Mott and that she is trying to be supportive and protective. She just doesn't always know how to do it. And I think that by the end, um, they have maybe found uh, a little bit better approach and they have um, been a little more honest with each other about what those needs are. And I think you, you see that reflected in the language, but there's, there's certainly, um, I, I have an enjoyment of a, of a certain amount of, of coldness and a little bit of a, a struggle um, that you, it may, it may feel a, l- a little bit uh, rough in the beginning <laughs> as you kind of get, get settled in. Well, as you were talking then, something has occurred to me. 
the journey this book took me on in terms of that transition from coldness and distance towards something more a more authentic love i suppose have you read brett analysis lunar park i haven't it's a book i bring up often on this show although not for a while and and the, the, they couldn't be more different books but the trajectory is the same so lunar park is it begins as brett analysis um pseudo biography which you know has has some overlap with the truth but he has a wife who doesn't exist he has a kid who doesn't exist but you know in this world he has written he is he is ellis he has written american psycho etc and and as it goes on the, the, the worlds between reality fiction and the supernatural start to collapse and you know patrick bateman becomes a character that's attacking the fictional ellis and blah blah blah, blah, blah. so it's it's a formal postmodern meta intellectual experiment that at the end becomes a genuinely sorrowful relationship between a far a, a father and, and and son and the son doesn't even exist you know um and if you get a chance read it because i think you'll recognize the trajectory of drowning practice in it um i couldn't have imagined in the first 150 pages of this book that I would close it and feel such sorrow because it felt like an intellectual experience that somehow along the way morphed into a complete emotional experience. Well, I appreciate that. Um, and you know, there's, and that, and that sounds interesting and I'll have to check that out. Um, you know, it's not, that's not an arc that I necessarily intentionally like set out to create. I think that I'm always trying to express an authentic emotional experience of the world more than an intellectual one. But I think that I also, the way that I go about things, um, that kind of is my, my experience of it. Right. Is that first I have to kind of grapple with the, um, the formal intellectual qualities of a thing. I have to, I have to understand it uh, consciously and then I'm able to, you know, feel and acknowledge more about what's happening um beneath that that is mm -hmm. is maybe more important well there's there's also lots of meta's too strong a word but lots of kind of self-reflexive stuff in this book like for example you know mott is writing this stuff that clearly reflects her own relationship with her mother um lid herself once wrote a novel about the end of the world that she's trying to promote again in her very real apocalypse um, and you yourself, outside the world of this book, you were sitting there thinking, when is the right time to to publish this? When is the when is the apocalyptic tomba at the right level that the, the, the world's ready yeah. for this book? Which which reflects what Lid is doing by trying to promote her previous apocalyptic fiction in in this landscape and stuff like that. So th there's lots of stuff where I get a sense there's an overlap between you and the characters and etc. I could ask you so many questions about that, but there's a quote when Lyd explains why she doesn't finish books anymore. And she simply says, I haven't finished anything in years because when I start a book, I feel so excited and then I get tired and then I get scared. And what I'm scared of, I think, is that I'll never read a book I love again and never feel the way I used to feel. Now, there's so much overlap, I'm guessing, between you and Lyd that I wonder, is that how you feel about books? 
Um, it was more when I was I was writing this. So so one thing I'll say is that like um, when you're when you're a writer writing a book about a writer who's writing a book, <laughs> you you're you can't help but be aware that um, one of the things that the reader is going to do is is try and look for these connections and points of comparison. And so uh, you know you can you can try and fight that or you can play with it. And I'm definitely trying to to consciously play with it throughout and offer the reader the pleasures of thinking about, you know, what those sorts of meta connections might be without um, hopefully burdening them with deciding like, okay, actually this is autobiographical. And now that's what my reading experience is about is trying to figure out what the, what the author experienced that is, is being reflected in the, in the book, but it's always there. Um, even, even with things that aren't uh, so potentially meta. Um, but when I, when I was writing the book, um, I, was in a real dry spell as far as reading goes um, that was, I think, largely a result of that that really deep depression that I, I talked about where, um, you know, at one point, I don't remember, I don't remember when this would have been in the, the course of writing the book, I'm going to guess relatively early, but it would have been in my, my late 20s or something. Um, my partner said to me over dinner, you know, Mike, I'm, I'm worried about you. You just don't seem to be enjoying things very much anymore. And I, and I said, well, that's not true. And I, I listed all these different things that I thought that I enjoyed just as much as I ever had. Um, and it took me years to, to figure out that they were right, that actually um, my, my enjoyment of life and the world around me was really impoverished by, by this thing that was happening to me psychologically, emotionally, chemically, whatever, whatever the you know, explanation is. Um, it was robbing me my, of my enjoyment of so many things and books really suffered. And I struggled so much with finishing books because I was constantly disappointed and frustrated and annoyed by them, which also made me feel like maybe I shouldn't be writing one if I, if I find these things so dispiriting. Um, but it was, it was a really, it was a hard place to be in for me for a long time. And I think that writing the book helped me get past it and, and being in therapy helped me get past it and being on meds uh, honestly helped me get past it. And I'm enjoying books now about as much as I, as I ever have. Um, but it was, yeah, it was rough <laughs> for a while there. I was not having a good time. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying them again. Cause I think it was Stephen King who said they're a uniquely portable magic. You can take them with you wherever you go. So I think in, in today's world, having a book in your back pocket or on your phone or whatever is it's a, it's the best kind of sanctuary I can think of against the vicissitudes of, of the universe. Um, and, and well, it's a good place as ever, I suppose, that to, um, to ask you to what I, what, do the thing I normally ask guests to do. Could you recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why? Yeah, um, so I want to recommend a book that I have just started and it, it, hasn't, it hasn't officially come out yet, but it'll be coming out soon. It's... Um, by Sandra Newman, and it's called The Men. And the premise of this book is kind of similar to my own book in, in like the loosest sense. Um, the book begins, and all of the men in the world have disappeared. And uh, it happens suddenly, and we don't know why. And so all of the, the characters that are left in the book are women who are trying to, to deal with the experience of this disappearance. And the reason I want to suggest it to your, your listeners, even though 
I have just started it is uh, one, I can tell it's going to be great uh, because I'm a huge fan of uh, Sandra. She was kind enough to blurb my, my book uh, to blurb drowning practice. Um, And this was, it was such, I was so gratified by that because her, her previous book, the heavens, I, I read it about a year ago and it was, I was discovering one of my favorite writers was the experience that I had. And this is a, this is a living person who I know. And it was, it was an incredible pleasure to, to find that. Um, it's so rare, but, um, I think that for your listeners, the men is probably going to be tonally a little bit more in the, the area where they, they might be especially excited to be. It's got a little bit more of a, of a horror thing going on. So I want to suggest keeping an eye out for that when it comes out. Yeah. Thank you for that recommendation. My last question, and I think we've touched on a lot of this, but I'll be interested more specifics. What truly scares you, Mike? Um, I am terrified of running out of money. Um, this is this is a thing that I have been afraid of for my whole life. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in, in not... I always wonder if I should use the word poor, but it, it was definitely, it was, it was tenuous circumstances. You know, the, the power would get cut off for a few days and then we would find some money and, and we'd get a check over to the, the power company and they'd turn it back on for us. And I would come downstairs uh, when we lived in the apartment or later I'd, you know, walk into the kitchen um, in our, our little home. And I would hear my parents like quietly arguing about the, you know, the situation and how best to deal with it. And it felt at all times as if we were about to lose everything. Um, And sometimes you could see the bad decisions that led to it. Sometimes you could say like, yes, I understand why we are broke this month and why we may be broke forever and why we might lose our house. And then sometimes it would feel just like this completely random thing that, that could happen to anyone at any time. Um, and And I think both of those things are basically true. Um, and so every time that anything goes wrong, uh, with, with my house now, which I, you know, I have the good fortune to own a house, so that's nice. But like every time there's like a repair that needs to be done or there's like an unexpected expense, um, what my brain says is this is what the rest of your life is going to be like. You're just going to spend all your money now and you're going to lose everything and you're going to, you're going to end up out on the street. And I can't convince myself that's not true. Um, (laughs) which is, it's, uh, it's scary. I was having this exact conversation with my wife this morning. She has exactly the same fear. Despite having a great career, being the best person in her field, she's convinced at any given moment she's going to lose a job and be homeless. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and also she's married to a guy who decided to quit his job in a global pandemic and become a freelance writer and podcaster. So uh, that's helped. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that was really comforting. Yeah, yeah. Um, God, God bless my Patreon listeners. <laughs> well, well, you, you heard Mike's fear. Go and buy his book. Give him a bit more reassurance. Drowning practice. As I said right at the start of this chat, it's a challenging book. It's a book that will not be what most people expect when they read the synopsis. But I think it is the closest thing to an actual meditation on our apocalyptic communal psyche that i've read since march 2020 and i uh, i commend you for it and i hope everyone reads it and enjoys it but otherwise mike mcginnis thanks for talking scared yeah thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure i, I really appreciate the uh 
the attention you you brought to your reading of the book. So as you probably picked up from that interview, my relationship with drowning practice was complicated. It's initial reservation giving way to great appreciation. So I was reluctant, first of all, to feature it on the show because it's not a horror novel. But it is scary because it reflects this harsh mirror back on our hamster wheel of a society. I was also reluctant to continue reading at times because it seems such a cold intellectual exercise. Even Mike seems to agree that that was his aim. Yet, regardless of what he says, sorry, Mike, you only wrote the damn thing, (laughs) the book does warm up, it softens, it flowers into something with a hell of an emotional impact. If you've read Never Let Me Go and felt that unique sorrow that I mentioned, then that's some indication as to how you'll receive drowning practice. If you haven't read Never Let Me Go, then read Never Let Me Go immediately. It's one of the best novels of all time. Actually, sod it. Whether you've read Never Let Me Go or not, read Never Let Me Go now. (laughs) An ugly cry now and again is a clear out for the soul. But considering Drowning Practice's thesis, it raises some questions. I'd like to think that if the end was coming, if it was nigh, then I'd be doing something mad Something suitably Josh Malamanesque, all fire and fury and fun. But then again, old Vlad has got his rockets turned towards us right now, and I'm still churning out copy for my day job, still watching TV and eating healthy dinners and walking my dog. So maybe we're all conditioned to live like everything is fine, right up until the moment that we know it isn't. Drowning practice does a great job of laying out the low-key nightmarishness of that realisation. For the record, though, everything will be fine. I'm convinced of it. That may be naive, you may be laughing right now, but fuck it. It's my podcast, and I'm sticking to my guns. It'll be fine. And there's reasons for that. If you follow me on social media, you'll have seen that I went to an honest-to-God cabin in the wilderness recently... Me and 16 friends from my running club, we had to hike for over six miles just to reach the cabin. It's called Black Sail. It's I think it's the most remote youth hostel in the UK in the Lake District. So we marched for six miles, got there, lit the fire, drank whiskey, and the day after we scrambled up a mountain and down again to the pub, and then we sat around the fire all night talking. The best part of it all, apart from the lack of aggrieved axe-wielding locals, is that we didn't have access to the news or to social media, so we got to live like it was the 90s again, just for a weekend, without endless doom-scrolling or or news that we can do nothing about being pumped into our heads. It, It was glorious. And I can't recommend getting away from screens enough, because I feel rejuvenated. And that's one of the reasons I think things will be okay, because things always look worse when there's this amalgamation, this accretion of bad news. So this this is risking turning into a, a life coaching lecture, and, and boy, am I not the right person for that. So I'll just say, simply, get out and smell the flowers if you can. Right, as ever, 
You can get in touch on Twitter or Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email direct to TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And please do. I love hearing from listeners. And if you can, leave a review. It's a massive help to the show. You can also support via Patreon and get access to loads of bonus content and some exclusive episodes. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash TalkingScaredPod. Otherwise, come back next week to hear Simone St. James, author of The Sundown Motel, discuss her new true crime-inflected ghost story, The Book of Cold Cases. And until then, have ice cream for breakfast. Buy a puppy. Think about what you would do if this was your last day on Earth. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>